you're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I review one episode of Rod Serling's iconic series and round out the show with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror, Dimension 404, and the upcoming Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. You can tweet me at obsessiveviewer, or you can send me an email at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And before I get into the episode, I just want to give a special thanks to uh, Tony Troxel from the Indiana Geeking Podcast and Geeking in Indiana blog. Uh, he provided us with our new intro um, sound, so you don't hear that very awkward and... Uh, Somewhat cringe-inducing uh, cold read that I did of my little altered introduction um, uh, over the over the theme music. Um, <laughs> kind of a peek behind the curtain. We were talking. Tony and I were talking about that, and it's just like I don't even I don't even listen to it when I edit it because it's it's just it makes me feel uncomfortable. But anyway, thank you so much, Tony, for providing your voice, your vocal talents to this podcast and making, making me sound a little bit more legitimate. Um, you can find more of Tony's work at geekingindiana.com and you can subscribe to his podcast, the Indiana Geeking Podcast, for the latest geek-related events and musings in the state of Indiana. I've actually been a guest on his podcast a couple times. It's always a great, uh, a great time and he he does it's um it's geeky in Indiana, but there's a lot of stuff about just geek culture and everything. Um so to definitely check that out. And also while I'm talking about Tony, um he is also a patron of this podcast. Um you can find more information on becoming a patron of Anthology and my other shows at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. But I would like to just thank Tony for uh, uh spending his time and money on 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 me here and supporting supporting what I do here. Um, it's much appreciated. So today on the podcast, I'll be discussing the incredibly popular episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, Eye of the Beholder. It's the sixth episode of The Twilight Zone's second season, and it aired on November 11th, uh, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll actually be sharing my thoughts on Eye of the Beholder's remake from The Twilight Zone's second revival, which aired on April 30th of 20, or I'm sorry, of 2003. And before I get into my actual review, I do have a little bit of feedback to give or, or feedback to read um, on the show. And I'm very excited about this because I got this um, message a couple or a, a little bit ago and I was just super excited about it. So I'm just going to go ahead and read this, read this, uh, read this message here. Um, all right. And quote. 
Matt, I just started listening and you're doing a fantastic job. I happen to be old enough to have viewed the original Twilight Zone when it premiered in 1959. Trust me, it was often very scary at the, at the time for a nine-year-old. And though I knew nothing of Serling's intent at the time, as an adult, I have come to appreciate his skill at making the episodes socially relevant. Your approach is at times very humorous, like when you can't pronounce the actors' names. <laughs> but always enlightening. While Tom Elliott's Twilight Zone podcast remains the touchstone and Twilight Pwn is slash was definitely another take on the on the approach to appreciating the Twilight Zone, yours is truly insightful. I assume your obsession with movies and TV accounts for that. You have noticed things and come up with connections that none of the others nor I have. I'm teaching a course this fall at a college in Illinois and we'll be using some of your commentary with the tri- with attribution for the class. Thanks again. By the way, did you get the Blu-ray set yet? It is fantastic and worth it for a Twilight Zone enthusiast. Signed Mike from uh, Illinois. So, a couple things about this. One, uh just the just I mean seeing my name or anyone uh putting my podcast in context with Tom Elliott's and and Twilight Pwn is just amazing to me. Like, cause though, I mean, those are kind of the gold standard of Twilight Zone podcasts. And the conceit of my podcast is that I'm experiencing it for the first time. So there's always that kind of, um, in the back of my mind, there's, there's always that fear that I am butchering or not doing service to this thing that I'm sure 90% of my listeners adore and have adored throughout most of their lives. So I really appreciate the feedback and I really appreciate, um, Mike writing in and, uh, and also just the fact that he's going to be using some of, some of what I've said in his course that he's teaching. I didn't, I kind of omitted the name of the college and, and the name of the course, but it is a twilight zone, um, course that he's, that he's, uh, teaching. So if any of, any of, my listeners are listening to this and are in that course. Uh, welcome to the podcast and, uh, hope, hope it's, uh, hope it's, I hope you like it. Um, so thank you so much, Mike, for writing in. And of course, you can always send me and send me an email or Facebook me or tweet me at obsessive viewer, matt at obsessiveviewer.com and at facebook.com slash anthology pod. Okay, so as normal for my reviews of the Twilight Zone episodes here, I'm going to read from a plot description. Uh, This comes courtesy of The Twilight Zone, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr. Um, This plot description and the review that follows is going to be incredibly spoiler-filled, so if you have not seen Eye of the Beholder and do not want to be spoiled yet... uh, Turn off the podcast, go watch it on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, anywhere, DVD, Blu-ray, um, and we will, uh, and then come back and listen to it. By the way, I never did get the Blu-ray set, um, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I did get the, uh, Fifth Dimension box set that includes the 60s and 80s, um, Twilight Zone, um, in it. I might eventually upgrade to Blu-ray, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I'm really enjoying that DVD box set. Okay, so plot description for Eye of the Beholder, and we are spoilers on. Janet Tyler has gotten used to having bandages wrapped around her face. 
She has finished her 11th surgery, and while the doctors and surgeons remain hopeful, her condition remains a concern. The state does not allow, hor- does not allow horribly disfigured people with her bone structure and flesh type to exist in society, banishing them to a village where undesirables are segregated. 11 is the mandatory number of experiments, and if this la- latest surgery fails, the doctors will be forced to give her an ultimatum, banishment or extinction. While the leader of the state speaks live on television about conformity and a single morality, the surgeons spend their time cutting away the bandages from Janet Tyler's head. Slowly they work until the last of her bandages is removed, and to their horror, there has been no improvement. The lights go on to reveal the truth. She is beautiful. It is the doctors who are the monsters. Janet Tyler, frightened, attempts to flee. Almost as if a hand were guiding her, she runs into Mr. Smith, a representative from the village who offers her a hand of friendship. He assures her that she will feel comfortable at her new home and will be loved. As Smith assures her, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Hoping for a future life with people of her own kind, she chooses to go with him. All right, and starring in this episode as Janet Tyler, while she's under the bandages, so providing her voice, is Maxine Stewart. This was her only appearance um, on The Twilight Zone. She also worked with Serling um, on The Man in the Funny Suit, which was a, an episode of Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse that dramatized um, Edwin's performance, like the behind the scenes of Edwin's performance in um, Requiem for a Heavyweight. And now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm not sure if Serling wrote that or was just credited because of because of that. But he did appear in the episode as himself. Um, that was actually going to be the original bonus review for this episode. Um, but then I realized that <laughs> this was remade in 2002, which that's kind of the that's kind of the problem with going through the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer because I don't know what episodes have been remade and, and everything, but I did finally sit down and made a list of all the ones that I could find that were remade or sequelized in one case, and I made sure that to put them in the uh, archive page of anthologypod.com so that I can use that as a guidepost so I don't spend a week prepping for a bonus review of something that is going to be bumped because the episode has been remade. Um, Maxine Stewart also appeared in a 1963 outer limits episode titled the man who was never born. And she had, uh, several return recurring TV credits in the nineties. Um, and, and she passed away in, uh, in 2013. Uh, starring or er, appearing as Janet Tyler after the bandages come off is Donna Douglas. Uh, she also appeared in season three's Cavender is coming. Cavender is coming. Um, anyway, uh, and ep- and she also appeared in an episode of Night Gallery in 1972. Um, she was in the waiting room slash last rites for a dead druid, and she's most famous for her role as Ellie Mae Clampett on Beverly Hillbillies. Um, she actually talks quite a bit about that on the uh, on the audio commentary on the DVD set, which is fine. But um, she passed away back in 2015. And also appearing in the episode as Dr. Bernardi is William Gordon. He was previously in Nervous Man in a $4 Room as George. 
and uh, this was mentioned back in that episode, episode 36, that he was an accomplished TV writer who wrote for The Fugitive, Ironside, The, Hal- uh, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and Chips, um, which I loved as a kid, uh, reruns of it at least. Um, and he also had two directing credits. He directed an episode of The Fugitive and an episode of The Richard Boone Show. And writer for this episode was Rod Serling. The episode was, uh, or the concept of the episode was recycled, um, or at least the theme was, for a later teleplay that he wrote for Night Gallery titled The Different Ones. And director for this episode was Douglas Hayes. This is his seventh of nine episodes. The next we'll see of him is the episode Dust, which I believe is in a couple of weeks now. And then uh, his last directorial effort is The Invaders later this season, which, as an aside, I'm kind of, it's kind of bittersweet because, I mean, he's he's a phenomenal director. And especially, spoiler for the review, like this episode flourishes with his direction and his his vision of it. Cause it's a very, it's a very difficult episode to achieve. And it's one of those cases where it appears to be so effortless, but it's, it must've been just maddening, uh, maddeningly difficult. And it's just, it's remarkable what he achieved on it. Um, as far as actually casting the episode, his primary concern was to pick actors that had sympathetic voices. So when they were casting the episode, he, um, basically had his back to the performers, um, during each casting session or each audition, I guess, uh, which I thought like, that's, that's a really clever, uh, way to cast this particular episode. And it vaguely reminded me of how they casted the four actors in the four of us are dying last season. Uh, that episode was directed by John Brom and the way that they casted that, if you don't remember, is that they brought in people, uh, and requested that they wear the same the same thing. And then they immediately, they immediately dismissed the ones that didn't have the right look or the right, like, like the right face essentially. And then they basically had the remaining ones ask them questions so that they can get kind of like their, their tone and their cadence and their, their personalities down. And then they picked the four there. Uh, you can hear more about that in episode eight of this podcast where I reviewed the four of us are dying. And finally, for trivia on on the director, um, Douglas Hayes actually wrote the scene with the doctor and the nurse. It's right after he calls for the anesthesiologist or anesthesiist. Um, it's where where he's talking about treason and everything, and and helping her, and in how he uh, sees her, he's seen her true face that's underneath the hideousness. Um, that piece of trivia comes from Mark Zakri in the audio commentary. Uh, basically what had happened was Douglas Hayes had realized that the episode would be short. And when he realized that during filming, I, I think, uh, Serling was out of town. So Hayes just went ahead and wrote that scene. And it's amazing because it's, I mean, it's seamless. Like it feels like it fits and belongs so well in that episode. So now we've come to my feelings as a first-time viewer of this episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, what I knew before the episode, like I like to jot down my my thoughts on the episode when I uh, before I watch it for the first time, so that I can kind of have my my perspective on the episode before seeing it documented. So what I wrote was, I know that this is one of the most iconic episodes of The Twilight Zone, in that it involves a woman who underwent plastic surgery and spent the episode wrapped in a bandage. I think that The Twilight Zone twist is that she lives in a world of gross 
pig-faced people and her surgery made her beautiful or that she was in an accident and the plastic surgery made her beautiful, but it's hideous to everyone in her world. I wasn't very clear on that. And then that was basically all that I knew about Eye of the Beholder before going in. So let me go into my thoughts as a first-time viewer of this episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, right off the bat, I loved the imagery of the silhouetted nurse that comes into the room and how the lighting is on the patient's bandaged face, is on Janet's face. It's not like overdone or it's not like it's it's a good balance between lighting the scene, but shrouding everyone else in darkness. It's not like there's a spotlight specifically on one, one person. It's, it's a good contrast to have it sort of dim, but everything else in shadow. And in that opening scene, that opening scene gives you all the information you need about Janet Tyler. Um, I love the way that she grabs the nurse's hand very delicately, very in kind of a pleading fashion. Um, when she asks her, um, when she asks her how, uh, what the day was like, if it was nice out, what the clouds were like, how, how the weather was and the way that the nurse puts her hand kind of gently on Janet's shoulder. It's just like that just shows you so much. It shows, um, it conveys how desperate, uh, Janet is for human contact and she just like the, in that scene where she's grabbing the nurse's hand, it's just you feel how desperate she is to not necessarily be normal, but to be accepted, to 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 be someone who can interact with people without disturbing them or anything. That's my read on it, at least. And right from the outset, like right from that, I just, I already wish that I didn't know the ending of the episode because I would have been really interested to see how I would have felt about the episode, but I'll get into that a little more later. But even knowing the, the twist and knowing what was going to happen, like that did not diminish the episode in any way for me, but I kind of wish that I, that I wouldn't have known. And we get a bunch of dialogue from Maxine Stewart as Janet goes on to talk about how she's been hideous and deformed for her, for most of her life and how her first memory is how, uh, it was of a, of a little girl screaming at her and just conveying that she has been suffering most of her life. And Maxine Stewart, I, I absolutely adored the voice acting. Um, she injects so much pain into that performance and you really, really feel how just, absolutely terrible her quote-unquote deformity has been for her her entire life like there is such an air of desperation off of that voice that is just so incredible and so captivating and really really makes you feel for that character and it's just it's it was man she was she was incredible like i i really felt the emotion in that in that performance and I was wondering if they were going to really hide the faces the entire episode. Like I knew that there was going to be a reveal that they, that, that they were kind of the, the monsters of the episode, so to speak. But I kind of wondered if they were going to keep up the facade of, or keep up the mystery of the, of the silhouetted faces throughout the whole episode. Because just right from that outset, I was thinking that is a tough task. Like that is a, that's a tall order because there's so much, 
to filming that like I didn't know how they could achieve it, and fortunately they achieved it very well. And so Serling's introduction or his opening monologue, um, there's one little piece of dialogue that he says that makes that uh, that really stood out to me. I'm gonna grab it out of this, out of the uh, the book here and read it. Um, in a moment, we'll go back into this room, and also in a moment, we'll look under. We'll look under those bandages, keeping in mind, of course, that we're not to be surprised by what we see because this isn't just a hospital and this patient in 307 is not just a woman. This happens to be the Twilight Zone. And Miss Janet Tyler with you is about to enter it. And I loved that moment because that kind of seemed not necessarily like a meta wink to the audience, but it kind of primed the audience or primed me to not not take away from it that we should be surprised that she was that she was normal all along and that the society she's in was the one that had the monster faces because that's just a surface level read on the episode and it kind of feels like Serling was basically telling us like hey there's a lot more to the story than than just the simple the simple twist that that she's beautiful and it was very interesting because it's also it was also as if the show was expecting us to guess the twist or at the least it was putting the possibility of the twist to the forefront of your mind at the start of the episode and that made me kind of wonder if the if the reveal was going to actually be at the end of the episode or if it would be kind of at like the first or second act break um but i really liked the way that this episode was paced and how it was kind of revealed late in the episode with enough uh, for the climax and uh, denouement uh, to play out. And it was around this time, like after her, after the opening monologue and after we get a little bit more uh, adjusted to the fact that everyone's face faces are going to be um, shrouded in darkness and, and concealed. Um, I just, that's when I really started to get into the fact that, uh, that the concealing, that they were concealing the faces like it. I, I loved how the concealing of the faces worked though it, because it wasn't my read on it, even though I knew like maybe this is just me knowing what the twist was, but I didn't see it as, as, Hey, why are they doing this? I saw it as the episode putting us into Janet's perspective. They're just disembodied voices to us the same as they are to her. If I hadn't known the twist um, ahead of time, I I don't think I would have picked up on it. Like, I don't think I would have been spending the whole time thinking like, Oh, well, why are, why are they hiding the faces? What could they possibly look like? Um, because it doesn't feel like it's just a misdirect or it doesn't feel like it's just concealing it. It feels like it is putting us into the emotional state of the protagonist of the episode. And that's something that I think is really clever and feels very organic to the story. And it's in, I mean, it worked like gangbusters. And I think that Douglas Hayes in, in the casting department, everyone involved in the production really nailed the doctors and nurses in this episode because they are very compassionate people and they're very much, they're very much aware that she's, that this patient is distraught and that, that they sympathize with her and they, they empathize with her. And then behind their back and behind her back, they talk about how she's kind of a monster, but it's in a, it's an empathetic gesture. And we get a scene between the doctor and Janet where, 
they're kind of talking about her options and they're talking about how this is the last surgery or the last experiment that she can do um, before the state just gives up on her. And I love that because it's, it's a combination of just showing how compassionate people in this society are and how compassionate and great the bedside manner is of this doctor and his staff. Um, but it's also a vessel for um, exposition and for background on the, on the, this corner of the twilight zone. And it was just really well done the way that it slowly, slowly discloses so much information about the episode and about the world that this episode exists in. Because first we get that it's state mandated experiments that they have a limit of 11. So if they don't, if they can't fix her face after the 11th try, that's it. They won't, they won't allow her to do any more. They'll just cart her off into a small, uh, into a, into a, a camp for other monsters like her, or they could exterminate her. And we get this slowly revealed throughout the episode. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's so well paced because it was kind of mind blowing to me because that's something, as I read in my, my, uh, comments about how I, what I knew about the episode beforehand, it like that came at me. Like that was a big surprise to me because I had no idea that they were going to go to that depth in this episode or, or make it this totalitarian government with a, with a Hitler-esque leader at the head of the world, essentially. And it, it was just such a fascinating thing to watch that slowly come to fruition or slowly come to light throughout the, throughout the episode. And at such a great pace because you get hints of it and it's not like a huge shock. It's just, it's background. It's literally kind of like background noise that's really developing the the central theme of the society that they live in and and how they operate and and how ruthless it is for someone like Janet Tyler. And then during that conversation with the doctor and Janet, the doctor mentions that it's her bone structure and the way that her flesh is is on her face that the way that he described it it's very it's very gentle and very very uh clinical I guess. But it makes you just think that maybe she truly is just grotesque and, and deformed and, and gross and disgusting. And that's, that's an interesting thing for, to, to kind of, for the show to implant into the audience's brains, uh, while they're watching this episode. Because it's such a distinct phrasing, uh, that conjures up some pretty disturbing images that exist solely in our imaginations. And I will say that, Probably my one, it's not even a gripe, but my one kind of ding on the episode is that kind of early in the episode, the audio was a little jarring. Like it just seemed, it seemed very apparent that it was a, it, it felt like watching a dubbed movie. Um, that wasn't quite like the audio was a little too, too crystal clear for, for Janet who's wrapped in bandages, like it wasn't muffled or anything, which is fine. Like it's not a, it's not a complaint. And that feeling definitely wore off as the episode progressed, but also like in, in some of the early scenes with the doctor, it just kind of felt like it just, it just felt kind of off a little bit. But I mean, after a couple of scenes, uh, probably, probably right before the first act break, I mean, it was that, that feeling wore off. I think that that was probably just the, just the conceit of the episode or the, or the way the episode was. Cause, cause you're just not accustomed to seeing 
seeing a story unfold that way without seeing any faces until the end. Um, so I think it's just an effect of the disembodied nature of the voice and, and, and the, and the obscured faces that kind of made me a little bit, it made it a little bit jarring, but credit to the episode because it just, it just, it wore off pretty quickly. So we get a scene where Janet breaks down and she's, she's pleading to take the bandages off and to go outside. And she goes to the window and you kind of get the sense that maybe she'll jump and, and end it all. Um, but she just really wants to feel the air of outside, which what I loved about how they, how they handled this episode is that you never get an idea of just how long she's been in, in those bandages. Um, we are told that it's her 11th, um, surgery and her her 11th experiment i don't know if those are consecutive that she's that she went in for went into the hospital for the first one and then was there for throughout 11 trials um and you just there's no sense of it but the way that maxine stewart uh emotes with her voice like you just feel the desperation and you feel how just like you feel the time that she spent isolated and alone and without human contact or outside contact. It's, uh, it's really remarkable because we never get an idea of, cause the show never has to tell us how long she's been there. It's just, it's conveying it to us in so many different ways. And it's, it's remarkable storytelling, absolutely remarkable storytelling. And when she's pleading to go outside and everything, I'm, I really felt for her. Like I said, Maxine Stewart's vocal performance is, is incredible. Like it is a phenomenal performance and I really, really empathized with her situation. And somewhat after that, that kind of freak out, that's when we get the reveal or the, or the, um, disclosure that when the doctor says that if the, if the experiment doesn't work, she'll be put into basically a camp or she would be, she would be taken to a place where she can live with other people like her. And I'll talk more about this later, but I just, that just blew my mind. Like in my notes, I just, I, like I kind of had to pause it and was just like, Oh my God, this is, this is insane. Like it's, it's incredible because the alternative to the treatments is that she's moved to a place with people that are like her and she's separated from society. Um, and it's just, and that alone is so disturbing and so, so, so creepy and unsettling. But then she calls him on it. She's like, no, that's segregation. You're there's that's segregation. That's not a way to live. Um, you're talking about ghettos that are, that are not tended to and everything. And it's just the, the fear in the, maybe not so much the fear, but the dismay and the, the pleading in, in her tone there is just so chilling to me. Um, really, really remarkable. And when she goes into her cries of the state is not God and that it doesn't have the right to make ugliness a crime the scale of that or the, or the, um, the buildup toward that is just amazing. Like the intensity of the episode and the escalation of that is so strong and, and great that it, you, at that point, like your heart's pounding with her to find out what's, what's going to happen to her because the stakes have been raised. And, and we now know she lives in this world that is 
terrible for her. And all of this is conveyed with her voice. Just, it's a very tricky performance. I think that Maxine Stewart just nailed 100%. She was phenomenal. I can't say that enough. Um, and then we get the scene with the doctor and the nurse and the nurse, like these candid scenes where they talk about her kind of behind her back and, and they kind of talk, talk about her as a thing as opposed to a human being, but not in like a, a terrible, like, um, bigoted way or, or, or anything. It's not, it's not anything that's malicious or anything. It's just, they're sympathizing with her, with her condition. But there's a moment where the nurse says that it's easy. She says, quote, it's easier for me to think of her as human with her face covered. And that line just destroyed me. Like that's such a terrible and horrific thing to say about a human being. And it's, and it's said in this tone, that's such a tender kind of, empathetic tone that it's just the signals kind of get crossed when you hear it. And it's like, you want to hate this, this person for saying it, but it's coming from a place of, of, of empathy so that it's just, you just have to just despise and hate the society. And it's, it's a very powerful line and a very powerful scene. And what I think, what I think is that, or what I think, again, going back to going back to the concealing the faces, what I think is brilliant about the episode itself in the conceit of, of the, of the episode where they're hiding the faces of everyone. Um, what I love about that and what I think is brilliant about that is that someone that's unfamiliar with the twist would likely be making assumptions about how grotesque her face is and thinking that this is just a standard monster episode, that she's this deformed being. Um, and like it, like the episode didn't need that. Like it didn't need to have that twist. It could have sh- just shown her, shown us her face from the outset, and and just be about how kind of right from the outset, just be on the nose. I guess no pun intended there um, about about the society and 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 as an allegory for for us and and how we view people that are different from us, but as a statement about beauty and bigotry and everything that wouldn't have had as strong an impact. And now when we have, when we have um, a character that's shrouded in bandages and, and characters that are talking about how, how disturbing she is and, and how it's easier to think of her as human when her face is covered, we get this idea implanted in our heads that she is, that she is severely disfigured and that it's grotesque. And, and I think that that, that placement, that, putting that image in our head does so much for the reveal later and, and for the reveal later and does so much to bring us into the theme of the episode and, and kind of the morality tale of it. And there's a line about how it's treasonous for the doctor to ask why it shouldn't be a crime to, to not be normal. And I thought that that was really fascinating because I mean, this is, this is such an incredible, incredibly well-realized world in such a short runtime and showing that it's treasonous for him to question the, the way that society views these, these deformed people is really, really great use of, um, screen time to, to build the world. 
And on one of the times when I was reading the, or <laughs> on one of my rewatches of the episode, I kind of became, I, I kind of came up with this kind of fun theory that I have, that, that I have for it. Um, since the, since the procedure is just injections, like they're not carving her face and reshaping it or, or doing anything like that or grafting skin or anything like that. I kind of wonder if there's really no need for the bandages, but that society just hates the deformed so much that the doctors and nurses keep her covered um, just as a means to cope with, with dealing with someone so grotesque and, and unnatural. Um, it's more than likely that I'm just reading into it too much and that, that the intent is that probably the light would disturb the healing factor of the injections or just that Rod Serling just wanted it to be revealed at the end. But I think if you read it that way, that since they're so vocal about how disturbing she is and how disturbing her face is, it kind of makes you wonder if she, if she doesn't really need the bandages and they just want to, you know, keep keep her out of out of their line of sight or keep her her deformity out of uh, their line of sight in the introduction of the leader um speaking on television i i thought that was great because it it could have been like we get so much context clues about the state and about about what's sanctioned by the state and everything but to actually see a public figure speaking in very deliberately speaking like or the the episode patterned his behavior and everything after after Hitler's speeches but to actually see that and see how they just come down from the like the screens just come down and they're just broadcasted throughout the hospital is really uh really kind of the nail um the nail uh, the nail in the coffin of not coffin but it's it's like the perfect cherry on top of, of the world building of the episode. And as a bonus, there are flat screen TVs that come down from, from the, uh, it's a thin screen screen that's dropping from the ceiling to, to project the, the video of, of the leader. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's really cool how the show is so ahead of its time as, and like, that's, I mean, we have flat screen TVs. That's, that's amazing to me. And something I uh, something else that I noticed on rewatches that is that the leader is never named. Like it's very clear. Like any reference to him is just that he's the leader. And I think that that's a really nice touch because the visual of him and in, in the like I said, the deliberate way that he's um, patterned after the speeches of Hitler and everything, like that gets the point across. And so we don't need this villainous character. And just naming him the leader is enough to to really make him kind of uh be something that we can latch onto and we can understand that this is this is a broad story like this is an allegory for real life that could be our real life uh situation if there was it's just a supreme leader of the entire world and i kind of started finding myself thinking or wondering just because i love this the world building in this episode. I love the world, the corner of the twilight zone that this episode exists in. It kind of made me just kind of start wondering if this was, if the leader is more of an idea rather than, um, a single figure and that the world is actually controlled by some secret society that the, that the, that the leader is just kind of a position rather than a, uh, uh, rather a position than, than an actual person, but it works either way. 
and the stuff with the leader also just made me think of cults and and like the people that follow follow charismatic leaders like like Jonestown and stuff and just that on a global scale and that made it even more terrifying. And so they start taking the bandages off with about 11 minutes left in the episode and they have to remove them very slowly, which I think was perfect because that just slow that builds up the tension and uh, really, really makes it uh, an intense moment. And I love the perspective, uh, the shots from her point of view. I think they used like a fishbowl and, and uh, removed bandages and had, like had a camera and a fishbowl, I think. And the way that that those sequences just slowly increase the light, and you see the the silhouettes or the shapes of the of the doctor and the nurses and everything. I just I just loved the steady um, the steady incline of of tension throughout that. And the doctor again in the scene, like he has a phenomenal bedside manner. Um, he tells her like right before he takes off the rest of it that he says, please remember you can still live a long, fruitful life among people of your own kind. And it's such a delicate way because he doesn't know if it worked or not. And he knows what's at stake. And it kind of reinforces just how, just how messed up her life is and how messed up this deformity it caused has caused her life for her entire life, really. And at that moment is when this, this scene just sent like a chill down my spine. She asks about the alternatives and the doctor says that in on rare case on rare occasions, um, there are, there is the extermination of undesirables and that is just so horrifying and upsetting and unsettling on so many different levels. At this time, we've already seen the leader. We know the, we know the Hitler allegory and everything that the show's going for. We, we see, like that is kind of a bombshell that that's dropped and it's not like it's just so casual like that's not like it didn't come about as like oh you're going to be exterminated and then and then the rest of the episode is her her not being her like her saving her life and everything it could have been so formulaic that way or so kind of uh predictable that way but the way that it's kind of a throwaway line or just, just like a, a last ditch effort. And the fact that, I mean, she's, that could be a reasonable choice for her in her frame of mind. It's, it's really, really chilling. And the fact that stuff like that's happened and, and continues to happen in some parts of the world is just, it just makes it so tragic and, and horrific and, and sad and, and, it's just, it's such an incredible line and uh, delivered so well by the doctor, um, by uh, William Gordon with his incredible bedside manner and kind of matter, matter of fact way of, of bringing it up. And it's, it's, ah, that's, that line just sent a chill down my spine. And so as the doctor removes the rest of the bandages, the suspense just reaches its crescendo and the episode does such a spectacular job once again of just selling how important it is for janet to be normal how important this is and then when we get the reveal that she's incredibly beautiful it comes after we get a shot of the ground and how the doctor drops the scissors and recoils back and the nurses gasp and everything and then he says no change there's been no change it's just 
it's just really an incredible reveal. And I could, I could immediately see why this was just the, why this is such an inc- iconic episode. Um, and then we get the chase the, we get her, her kind of frenzied escape through it. And this really makes it so much more intense. It's the payoff of so much building up toward that, toward this climactic scene where she's running through, she's seeing all of these people and, and these, these monsters essentially, but she's not running from them. She's, she's running away. She's running away from them, but not from them. They're not monsters to her. They're beautiful essentially. Um, and she's running through the halls and, and she throws that object at the screen and, and where the leader's talking and just the fact that the leader is speaking throughout all of the hospital and you get the anger and her, him, him screaming about conformity and, and how everyone needs to be the same and that it's the moral thing to do. It's just a really haunting climax to this episode. And then finally, finally we get the scene where she runs into a room and she sees a man there. And then the fact that she recoils and, and kind of, it's not melodramatic. There's, there's so much like it could have been such a melodramatic, like gasp and faint. Cause she sees this horribly disfigured man. That's super handsome by, by like real world standards and everything. But it's a, such a subtle, subtle, Jesus Christ. <laughs> such a subtle um recoil that like she she kind of stops and then and then jumps back a little bit and then and then kind of uh like slumps down on the table and then the doctor comes in and he's still super friendly and everything and the way like as he's talking she kind of clings to him like like she's looking at a monster this mr smith is a freaking monster to her and it's i thought that was such a brilliant touch to this episode and as we get to the kind of end of the episode i just i just kept thinking this is one of those twilight zone episodes that i really would love to see expanded like i would love to return to this corner of the twilight zone and get more information about the about the society that she lives in and and how how this works that's not to say that the episode didn't deliver in any way like the episode is so spectacularly written and the world is so well developed in it that i just wanted to live there more and i wanted to know more about it it's not a shortcoming of the episode it's just i just it's just so well done that i want to know more um in smith's description of the camp where he says that you'll sense a feeling of belonging and and being loved and it'll take long, it'll take shorter than you're expecting than you would expect to feel those things. That description, um, compared to her perspective of how it really must be where she tells the doctor that, that they're segregating them and that they're ghettos and they're not taking, they're not cared for and everything. It makes me wonder what they're truly like. The episode leaves it really up to, um, up to our imaginations to kind of figure out our own way. Like it leaves it ambiguous and, it's pretty clear that Smith is selling her on it. I don't know if like it could go either way. It could be just genuinely like she'll live a happy life and everything, or it could be the terrible, terrible thing that she thinks uh, that she thinks it is. And kind of the one, the cynic in me, the thing that made me kind of wonder about it is that 
at the end, there's there's kind of a third option, like the fact that she's going to this magical place where she'll be with her own kind, and she'll be find that sense of belonging. I kind of wondered if. I kind of wonder if it was all a ruse in that she would be exterminated. And like, like that's just, that's just what they say. Like after the 11th one, after the 11th experiment, if nothing's changed, they just take, take her off to a place under the guise of, of telling her that she's going to go somewhere and then just execute her, which like, there's nothing in the episode to really make you think that. But you can easily read that into it. And the real tragedy, the the terrible and most heartbreaking thing about that read of it is that you can get that, you can read that because that kind of stuff happened and that was, that's what the Nazis did. And that's just, it's really heartbreaking and, and horrifying for a multitude of reasons. And just the fact that it's that that read of it is based on reality is really the most tragic thing of all. And I loved Serling's closing narration. I'm just going to read it here. I'm going to butcher it. Obviously I should have Tony read it, but um, uh, his closing narration is now there are questions that come to mind. Where is this place? And when is it? What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty, the deviation from that norm? You want an answer? The answer is it doesn't make any difference because the old saying happens to be true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In this year or a hundred years hence, on this planet or wherever there is human life, perhaps out among the stars, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Lesson to be learned in the Twilight Zone. And that closes one of my favorite episodes so far. Like, I don't think I love it as much as I love The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, but it is a very close second because there's so much to this episode to to garner from it. There's so much there's so much to be learned about our society and about how we treat people that are different from us. And it's told in such a spectacular way with such a such an enormous amount of care and on every facet of it. And it's just amazing that like I went through this whole review without even really touching on the big reveal. Like it's just something that happened. It's, I mean, it's a big shock if you're not expecting it and everything, but it's also not what's important about the episode. And I think that that's something that should really be applauded because it's certainly and company really got their point across in a very eloquent and, really fascinating way in this episode. And I, I just adore the, I I adore the show for that. And it, it was, it was amazing. Um, so to kind of wind down, uh, for trivia for this episode, um, Douglas Hayes had planned to have Maxine Stewart. Um, he had planned to have her say Janet Tyler's one line. Um, in the in the episode where uh where uh, when she's unbandaged where she says why do why why do why are we made this way um or something to that effect but um Donna Douglas had who who plays um her after the bandages come off had heard Stewart's voice so much like as she recorded her part and everything that she was able to imitate her so successfully that she actually delivered the line 
in an in a in an imitation of Maxine Stewart's voice. So that was that was a really interesting piece of trivia. And then of course, I believe the original episode title was The Eye of the Beholder. Um but they Serling and company were threatened with a lawsuit from a producer named uh Stuart Reynolds. Um he threatened to sue because uh, he had a he was selling at the time he was selling an educational film of the same name to public schools. And after the episode initially aired, uh reruns actually featured the title screen as being the private world of darkness. So that I mean that was interesting, but I mean Eye of the Beholder is is a perfect title for the episode and I'm glad that they got that worked out. So overall, I mean it's uh, it's pretty clear this is one of my favorite episodes so far. It's spectacularly well made. Douglas Hayes, I'm sad that I only have two episodes left of his work on the show to go through because he knocked it out of the park. The technical aspects of this episode were astounding. Um, having the having so many different ways or so many different angles of people's faces being obscured by darkness it's never boring and it's it's never anything that takes you out of the episode because as i said it takes you into the perspective of janet tyler as she's laying in the hospital bed wrapped in bandages it's just a really really spectacularly well-made episode and also the lighting is incredible because you you have to balance the light of the main character and and the light of the scene of Every single scene, you have to balance that with darkness so that you can't see the faces of the of every other character in the episode. And it's something that's really, really spectacular and, and amazingly well done. And yeah, uh, I think that's about all I have to say about Eye of the Beholder. I absolutely love this episode and I'm, I'm really excited to hear what everyone else thinks of it. So definitely email, message me, do contact me and let me know what you thought of Eye of the Beholder because this is such a great episode and there's so much to talk about on it. And I'm sure that I've, that I'm, I probably missed a lot of things or I, I missed uh, some reads on it or that people had other uh, different takes on it. And I would love to hear that because this is an episode that, that really, uh, really blew my mind. And so before I move on to this week's bonus review, I've actually got a highlight from episode four of Tower Junkies, which is a new podcast from ObsessiveViewer.com that's devoted to Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. So here is a clip from Tower Junkies. Uh, the whole spiritual realm, when, when I was a kid, freaked me out. Still does this day, even though I don't buy into any of it. Sure. But... Um, so it never really stuck with me, but it was one of those movies, while you're watching it, Pennywise was a very creepy and disturbing yeah. character. Mm-hmm. And Tim Curry. Oh, he kills it. He, he's, he's the only part of that movie that holds up. Yeah. And his, his performance is still fantastic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You can find Tower Junkies at towerjunkiespod.com and subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and any other podcast app. You can find the episode you just heard a clip from at towerjunkiespod.com slash 004. And for more podcasting from obsessiveviewer.com, visit obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. Okay, and so to wind down this episode, I have for my bonus review, um, Eye of the Beholder from the 20, uh, I keep doing that, from the 2002 Twilight Zone revival starring Forrest Whitaker as in the, in the host role. Um, 
I have the Beholder, as I said earlier, aired April 30th, uh, 2003. And the director for the episode was David Ellis. And Wikipedia and IMDb kind of conflict on this. Um, there's He's credited as David Ellis. And the profile that they have for IMDb on that is for a David Ellis that that did some behind the scenes work and everything, and this might might have been his only directing credit, but Wikipedia actually lists him as David R. Ellis, who is a, a director who did. Let me pull him up here. I'm sure. I, I think I've got. <laughs> I think I'm not confusing him. Wikipedia has him credited as David R. Ellis, who directed like Homeward Bound Two, Final Destination Two, uh, the 2004 thriller Cellular. Um, and a couple other things. He actually passed away back in 20 or 2013. That was, that's surprising. I didn't know that. But anyway, um, I don't know if that's the same one that directed this episode or not because Wikipedia and IMDb, um, differ on that. But, um, the episode itself has Molly Sims in the, in the role of Janet Tyler. And it's interesting because they didn't remake it the way that they remade The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Um, what they did was they did, I mean, they adapted the original screenplay into an episode. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a very close copy of the original episode. Uh, they use Serling's original script and it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see that take on it. I mean, it's not a bad episode. They do, they do make some choices that, uh, I'll talk about here in a second, but, uh, for the most, for the most part, it's a pretty interesting take on it. Uh, it starts out with a slow tracking shot over the bed, um, that slowly goes up to the head of Janet Tyler and kind of really focuses on the bandages and, the the way that the bandages are are shown in the episode is that there's a small mouthpiece or like there's an opening at the mouth that's all dark and everything so that's it's an interesting take of of uh or it's an interesting look at the or it's an interesting aesthetic choice i'm trying to say um and i noticed that throughout the episode they they were filming more more from the chest down than than uh rather than concealing the other characters in shadow which i think worked pretty well um it was it wasn't as i don't know it, i wouldn't say that it was cheap because i think that there is a bit of it, it's probably a bit more difficult to film uh characters faces obscured in darkness when you're working with color film uh or you know a something in color um just because i i would think that black and white is, uh, is more conducive to that visual effect than than color is and i noticed right from the outset that molly sims energy is a little more horrifying or her energy is a little more horrifying when she's talking about the kids screaming at her like she's very much like it's not this um painful emotional um reveal it's this it's this horror that she's faced with, um, no pun intended, but, uh, this horror that she's faced with throughout her entire life, which, I mean, I think that works. That, uh, that's an interesting take. That's, that, that works pretty well. In one of the, one of the changes or one of the, uh, choices that were made in this episode that I, I wasn't too crazy about is that the doctors and the nurses aren't really that compassionate. 
um, like they're not the compassionate voices of the original. Like when uh, Janet freaks out and goes to the window, the doctor kind of loses his composure and, and gets kind of angry. And I don't know. I, I I'm all for different takes on, on a work like, uh, like, I mean, David Ellis made this his own and, and this episode definitely made some choices like that. But I just think that there's a little too much lost in the story when, when you make the doctor lose his compassion and his composure and, and have it more, um, dramatic rather than, rather than slowly building it up. And also the doctor and nurse scene that was so, that was so well done in the original version. It's played more suspensefully. Um, like when he's talking about it being treason and everything, the music kind of makes it a lot more tense. It's, it becomes more about the possibility of the doctor committing treason rather than about the world building and, and the what's at stake for Janet Tyler. And that, that was something I wasn't too crazy about. Um, it just felt a little, a little cheap or a little, uh, it felt like it was an effect. Like it was, it felt like it was telling me how to feel about, about the scene and about what's to come rather than, you know, going through the, um, process of, of slowly building up the world, which is fascinating to me. Like, this is a fascinating case study. Like watch this episode or watch the original episode and then, and then watch this episode back to back. And you can see the choices and how the narrative, uh, kind of goes, goes in a different directions, which is fascinating because they're the exact same script. I, I love that type of thing where you can see different takes on the same script. By the way, this entire episode is available on YouTube. I forgot to mention that. I'll put a link in the show notes and I posted it on the Facebook page, which is again at facebook.com slash anthology pod. Um, and there was just something about this version of the story that just felt really flat to me. Um, the acting wasn't the best. Um, it kind of felt like, especially the, the scene with Mr. Smith, it felt more like that actor was really just reciting his lines. And there was, again, it was a lack of compassion. Like it just felt like it was very compassionless and, and, uh, it just, it just didn't feel like there was much care for, um, um, for interacting with this character that's going through such a tumultuous experience. I just felt like they were just reading lines and it was a little more dramatic rather than caring and, and compassionate. Um, my final thought on this episode though, on, on this bonus review is that the one, probably the biggest takeaway from the episode is that the actual makeup of the doctors and the nurses after the reveal in that version, it's really grotesque. Like, you like the imagery of the like I, I kind of applaud them because they they went a different direction with it because the imagery from the from the 1960 version like that's that the way that the faces look in that episode like the makeup effect of that that's become iconic that's an iconic twilight zone image um i have actually one of the um i can't remember the 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 company name cause it's in my room, but I have one of those figures hanging up on my wall above my whiteboard that I have all my podcast notes on. So like it's an iconic imagery and everything. And then in the 2002 version, like they didn't just copy that they, they went their own route. They made them much more grotesque and disfigured and, and gross, which I think is a good, uh, summation of that episode is that it's more about surface level things. Like it's about the, the contrast between the beautiful and, and the grotesque. And it's about, 
um, the drama of this girl that's faced or this woman that's faced with her last chance at normal in that society. And it just, all of that kind of came together in a way that just felt flat and didn't feel like it really took to heart the, the brilliance of the original episode, which I wouldn't fault David Ellis or any of the, any of the crew or anything on the 2002 version of it, or in the, I guess the 2003 version of it, because I mean, that's a tough thing to remake or that's a tough thing to recapture. Like the original 1960 version is lightning in a bottle. It's, it's incredible how, how much is conveyed in that short span of time. And I mean, if you're remaking it, this is an example, like you're remaking it with the exact same script. Like there's that pressure to do something different and to put your own mark on it. And it's really a losing battle because you can't really make your specific mark on something that's already brilliant. Honestly, um, the only course of action would be to do the opposite or to do something different the way that they did with the monsters are on Maple street, which I think with the right, with the right care and with a genius, <laughs> a genius of Serling's stature, you could have made the monsters are on Maple street. Um, the remake of the monsters are due on Maple street. You could have made that very, very fascinating and, and well done. But unfortunately that just wasn't in the cards for the, for the episode and everything. But between the monsters are on Maple street and I have the beholder, the two remakes I've seen from, of of the monsters do on Maple Street and I have the Beholder. I would say that I have the Beholder is better because it uses the original script, but there were some narrative choices and some some choices that were made that didn't quite mesh with me. But that original episode is is out of this world. It's incredible, and um, I'm really glad that I finally got to see it. Um, so that'll do it for this episode of Anthology. Um, if you like what you've heard and you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that would be by leaving a rating and a quick review on iTunes, or you can also do that on Stitcher Radio if you listen, listen on Stitcher Radio. Um, you can also donate to the podcast through PayPal by clicking the donate button on anthologypod.com and in the show notes of this episode. The show notes, by the way, can be found at anthologypod.com slash 039. And of course, like Tony, who provided the, uh, narration for the, or the voiceover for, for our opening theme here, uh, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for recurring monthly payments that help support, uh, this podcast and, and goes straight to, it goes into an account that is open solely for, uh, paying the fees to keep the podcast running and keep the podcast online and, and keep the lights on here at obsessive viewer studios, which is my little one bedroom apartment with my cat. So anyway, um, thank you for listening next time on the podcast. I will be reviewing the seventh episode of season two of the twilight zone, Nick of time. Um, I'm hoping to get more episodes put out here on a more frequent basis. I went through and, basically put put in my calendar the dates for each episode that I want to release an episode or each day that I want to release an episode of each podcast under obsessiveviewer.com. So hopefully that will get me onto a, um, a more focused work ethic and, and a more, uh, it'll increase my output quite a bit, I, I think. So look forward to that. I also have one more episode in my Dimension 404 bonus review series. 
Um, so that episode should be coming out sometime next week. Definitely write in with your thoughts on Eye of the Beholder, and if you have any suggestions on future bonus reviews, feel free to send those in as well. Um, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Tickets are on sale now for the fourth annual Shocktober in Irvington, presented by the Obsessive Viewer Podcast. Join the hosts of the Obsessive Viewer on October 6th, 2017, for a one-night event screening of short horror films, including the premiere screenings of the latest film in J.P. Leck's cross-medium elsewhere world universe, the latest film from Snapshot Productions, and much more. Come celebrate the horror genre in the historic Irvington area and meet the filmmakers with live Q&As after each screening. You can also win DVDs and Blu-rays, movie-related party games, horror-themed Funko Pop figures, gift cards to Irvington businesses, and so much more. Tickets are on sale now at shocktoberinirvington.com. All proceeds go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. And we will be seeing you on the 6th of October. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For more of Anthology and a full archive of my episodes, go to AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to help support the show, the easiest way you can do that is by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also make donations to the show courtesy of the donate link in the show notes of each episode and on AnthologyPod.com. For recurring donations, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer and just choose one of the Anthology reward tiers. If you enjoy Anthology, feel free to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friend Tiny and occasional guest co-hosts over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also join The Obsessive Viewer Facebook group at Facebook.com slash The Obsessive Viewer. For book reviews and commentary on the world of reading, check out our sister site at obsessivebooknerd.com. And for philosophical discussions from a secular viewpoint, check out my friends Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Finally, if you'd like to contact me with your thoughts on the show, my reviews, my bonus reviews, or for any other reason, you can tweet me at obsessiveviewer, send me an email at matt at obsessiveviewer.com, or send me a message on Facebook and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.